Genesis chapter 42, verse number 36. The Word of God says, And Jacob their father said unto them... Now he's speaking to his sons when he says this. Uh, he said unto them, Me have ye bereaved of my children. Joseph is not, and Simeon is not, and ye will take Benjamin away. And then he makes a, an astounding statement. The age patriarch says, All these things are against me. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity to be in your house. We pray especially for those that are bereaved today. Family's been dealt crushing blows. And we just ask that you would uphold them in your grace. Give them the comfort and the encouragement that they need. Pray, Lord, for those still struggling with sickness, that you would touch them, heal them. Pray for those of us that have caught a, a few breaths of uh, clean, unsick air. Pray that you keep us safe and uh, watch over us as well. And I pray, Lord, that this morning you would do great works in our hearts and minds. I pray that we'd not have just come out of former formality, but we would have come for fellowship with you, to hear from you, to grow in you. And I pray, Lord, I know the Word of God is capable, is sufficient. So I pray, Lord, that you would, through your Word, do an eternal work in our lives. We'll be sure to give you the glory for it, Lord. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to read to you again what Jacob says here in verse 36. He says to his sons, Me have ye bereaved of my children. Then he says, Joseph is not, and Simeon is not, and ye will take Benjamin away. And then he says something that I bet a few of us have said, maybe all of us, in one way or another, at one time or another. He says, All these things are against me. Now, to give you a little background for what's going on in Genesis chapter Number 42. The story really begins several chapters earlier when uh, the sons of Jacob... Jacob had 12 sons. Uh, he had 10 by his uh, wife uh, Leah and her maiden. And he had two by his wife Rachel. And 12 years earlier, uh, at that time Benjamin was not yet born, but uh, 10 of the brethren decided to take the 11th, Joseph and do away with him out of jealousy, out of malice, out of hatred in their hearts. Uh, they He comes out to the field to meet them one day, to check on them by order of his father, and they see him coming. They say, this is our opportunity to get rid of this do-gooder, of, of this know-it-all, uh, of, of this uh, sort of goody-two-shoes, if we can use that term, uh, Joseph. And so they concoct a plan that they're going to take him and throw him into a pit, leave him there to die. You say, well, preacher, why would a person die if they was thrown into a pit? Have you seen that rain out there? Amen? You wouldn't last three minutes in a pit. You'd be drowned in weather like this. And even if he wasn't drowned in the hot and dry climate that often uh, is common in the land of Canaan, certainly he would have starved to death. He would have thirsted to death. It was a death sentence for him to be thrown in this pit. And that was their intention. So they throw him into this into this pit, and they they desire to leave him there and to allow him to die. Cooler heads prevail. They decide maybe they don't want their brother's blood on their hands, so they draw him up out of the pit and sell him into slavery. And thus begins the long, perilous, arduous journey that Joseph takes from from where he is in that pit 
until where he is in chapter number 42. Joseph, of course, is taken out. He's sold uh, to a passing caravan who takes him into Egypt and he is sold on the auction block as a slave. He's bought by a man uh, by the name of Potiphar, uh, taken into his home and becomes his, his head servant. He arises to a place of trust and uh, to a place of importance in Potiphar's home. And then, of course, the story many of you are familiar with, Potiphar's wife sets her eye upon Joseph, uh, decides that she wants more uh, than a servant-master relationship with him. And uh, so he decides he's got to get out of there. He takes off and runs, even leaves his coat in her hand. The old preacher said, sometimes it's better to lose your coat and keep your character. Amen. Uh, but whenever he runs away, she realizes what this is going to mean and how this is going to get her in trouble. So she cries out and says that uh, Joseph had tried to take advantage of her. And Potiphar, in his rage and his anger, he uh, takes Joseph and throws him into prison. And Joseph spends what I believe is probably the next ten years uh, in prison. And while he's in prison, he does what he always did. Every time he was in a situation, he was just faithful. He just served God. He just kept his nose to the grindstone, trusted the Lord, and God always exalted him. Faithfulness always wins the day in the long run. Faithfulness always wins the day in the long run. In the initial, you may feel like you're getting slighted, getting the, 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 the lesser part of the deal. But in the long run, faithfulness always wins. And so Joseph is exalted in the prison. And he hears, uh, overhears two men that have fallen out of the good graces of Pharaoh for various reasons. Here's them talking to each other about dreams that they've had that they don't understand. So Joseph tells him, I can interpret those dreams for you. Uh, one was a butler, one was a baker. He interprets these dreams. One of the dreams is good, that a man will be restored to his former position. Another one uh, is bad, that that fellow in three days is going to be hung for his crimes. And so the butler is taken out of prison, uh, just as Joseph uh, had interpreted the dream. And uh, then this man, this butler, he forgets about Joseph. Let me say this, often as we serve God, there'll be people that we've labored with and ministered to and helped that will forget about us. I wish I could tell you that uh, everybody was always going to treat you fairly, but the fact is, in this world, in this life, in this walk, there's going to be lots of times when the people you've helped the most will forget you the quickest. And so, the butler forgets about Joseph for two more years, and then... All of a sudden, one day, Pharaoh has a dream. And Pharaoh can't figure out what this dream, dream means. And this jars the butler's memory. He remembers that there was a man in prison named Joseph and that Joseph was able to interpret dreams. So they bring Joseph before Pharaoh, and he interprets the dream that there's going to be seven years of plenty in the land of Egypt, and then seven years of famine to follow that. And Joseph, or Pharaoh is, is astounded at the wisdom, at the cunning of, of, of Joseph, that he uh, knew from the Lord this truth. And so he exalts Joseph. And he puts him at a place of prominence in an administrative position, makes him the, the third in the kingdom, and uh, puts him over the preparation for these lean years. And so for seven years, they grow as much as they can, they lay up in store as much as they can, knowing that famine is coming. Well, soon enough, famine does indeed come. And it's not just in the land of Egypt, it's all over uh, that part of the world, including back in Canaan, where his father and his other brothers are living. And so famine has come to the land of Canaan. Jacob goes to his sons and he says, you need to go to Egypt, they have plenty of food there, and buy corn and buy provision for us and come back. 
And so his sons, uh, ten of them, uh, journey. Benjamin stays at home. Joseph, of course, is in Egypt. The other ten brothers, they journey uh, back to the land of Egypt. And when they get there, uh, lo and behold, who do they meet but their brother Joseph? They do not know that it's Joseph. Uh, 10, 12 years in prison will change a man. And so they don't know that it's him. And, and when he sees them, he doesn't let on that it's him. He speaks roughly to them. And he says, I know that you men are spies. You've come to spy out the land. Of course, he knew that was not the case. And I won't get into it now, but he was trying to, to, uh, to coax them to a place of repentance. Aren't you glad when we've done wrong, the Lord doesn't just snuff us out, but He'll try to coax us to a place of repentance. And so... That's what Joseph does. He begins this process of trying to bring his brethren to a place of contrition and repentance. And he desires to see Benjamin. Benjamin is his younger brother. And so he devises a plan whereby he can get Benjamin to Egypt. He asks them who they are, these his brethren, these men. He asks them who they are, how many there are, who their father is, who their brothers are. And they tell him, they say, there's ten of us and there's one that is not. Because to their mind, Joseph is gone and dead. Uh, they don't realize he's standing right in front of him. And they say, we have another brother who's at home back in the land of Canaan. So he tells him, he says, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll throw all of y'all in prison, and one of you can go back to the land of Canaan and get your brother and bring him back here. And if you bring him back, then I'll know you're telling the truth. I'll know that you're not spies. So he throws them in the prison, and uh, a week passes. They've still not agreed to do that. They don't believe there's any way they can get Benjamin there. So Joseph sort of changes the terms. He says, I'll tell you what, I'll keep one of you in prison here, and the other nine of you can go back. And when you bring Benjamin back here, when you bring your brother back here, then you can get Simeon back. So he loads him up with provision. He takes the money that they had paid him, puts it back into the sacks of food that he had given to them, and sends them on their way. Uh, as they're in journey, they open up that bag of, of grain and of provision. They see their money there, and their heart immediately just folds in on itself. They think, this man's going to think that we've stolen from him. He's surely not going to deal with us now. And so they get back to the land of Canaan. They go into their father, and immediately Jacob notices that one of them's missing. And he says, where's Simeon? And they recount the entire story before him. And they say, the only way we can get Simeon back is to take Benjamin away. And it is in this context, with all these things seemingly working against him, that Jacob makes this statement. That this cry of despair is uttered forth. Let me start the message by saying this, that I can see why he said that. Truly, anybody in such a circumstance would probably think the same thing. What an astounding alignment of circumstances has presented themselves to bereave him, to rob him, not only of Joseph, who was dead 12 years ago, of Simeon, who he believes will never leave an Egyptian prison, and now Benjamin, that the brothers are trying to take away. It feels as though all these matters of life are conspiring against him. And in that moment, he yields to the discouragement, the disheartenment, the despair, and he forgets about the Lord. We all probably have been at this place one time or another. And I want, if I can, to just walk through this and make a few statements about this statement, about what we're going through when we're going through this, about what we're thinking when we're thinking this, about what we're saying when we're saying this, and about what we're forgetting 
when we feel this way. Let me begin by making a few statements about Jacob. Who was this man that is making this statement? Now, most of us that have grown up in church, we know who Jacob is. He's the son of Isaac and Rebekah. He's the grandson of Abraham and of Sarah. He is the brother of Esau. He's the father of the twelve patriarchs of, of Israel. We know his story. But I want you to consider that story in light of this statement and vice versa. Let me say number one that when we think about Jacob's life, we must recognize that the man making this statement, all these things are against me, my life is over, everything's fallen apart, the man yielding to despair is not an inexperienced man. He is an old man by this stage in his life. He has seen more than you or I will probably ever see in our lives. You know, it's funny, sometimes we get get to thinking and get to feeling. Brother Bill's talking about a little bit on, on Friday morning when he was talking about temptation. Sometimes we get the idea, we know that it's not true, but we, we, we begin to expect that we're going to outgrow some of the unpleasant experiences of life. I, I don't know if it's because that's the only good thing about getting old. Somebody say amen to that. Or why, but we, we begin to think that there are certain things that we just simply will not face because we have experience. Jacob was an aged man. He had walked with God for many years. He knew God. He knew how God works. Uh, He had seen God work. He was not an inexperienced man. But listen, despair can come even, and sometimes especially to those that have experience. One of the great burdens, I think, sometimes... As you grow older in life, and this, by the way, is a lot of the reason when people grow older, they begin to grow more frail in their in their mind frame. They begin to grow more timid. The book of Ecclesiastes describes this. You know why that is? Because you're just old enough to know how dangerous this world is. You're old enough to know that everything don't always work out like a Hollywood movie or like a fairy tale. You're old enough to know what the real substantive dangers in life are. And don't think, just because you got a few years under your belt, don't think that despair cannot come and find you. Don't think that you can't be making this statement before we meet again next Sunday. He was not an inexperienced man. Let me say number two, that the man making this statement was not an ignorant man. He knew that sometimes God has to deal with His children with a heavy hand. He knew something, listen carefully, of the relationship between pain and providence. Several years earlier, as a younger man, he was traveling back to the land of his birth, and he gets word that his brother Esau, whom he had wronged, is coming down the road. He assumes the last time that him and Esau saw each other, Esau swore that he would kill him. And he assumes that Esau's going to make good on that. And so Jacob divides his company into two different companies. He sends one uh, wife and, and that wife's children and half the servants and half the livestock in one direction. He sends the other in the other direction. He says that way if Esau falls on one, at least the other will be spared. He sends everyone away and he gets alone with God. He goes by the brook Penuel. And the Bible says there wrestled a man with Jacob till the breaking of day. That man was no mere man. That man was God. For later on, Jacob says, I've seen God face to face. Jacob, through that entire night, he wrestles with God. And he begins to win. He begins to prevail until God reaches out and touches the hollow of Jacob's thigh. And he's crippled in that moment. 
And he goes from contending with God to clinging to God. He goes from, from fighting with God to just trying to hold on to the man that's wrestling with him. The man that's wrestling says, let me go. Jacob says, I'll not let you go except you bless me. And he looks at him and he says, what's your name? He says, my name's Jacob. Now, that's interesting because God already knew Jacob's name. But he wanted Jacob to admit it. The name Jacob means deceiver, supplanter. He says, Jacob's my name. He says, your name's not going to be Jacob anymore. From now on, it's going to be Israel. He says, as a prince hast thou strived with God. In other words, you've finally gotten it, Jacob. But you don't get your way through deceit. You get your way through prayer. The Bible says, as the sun rose over Jacob's shoulder, he halted upon his thigh. And even on this very day, as he sits and speaks to his sons, as despair soaks his soul, he still bears the pain and the memory of the lesson that was learned. He's not somebody that is unaware that sometimes God uses the hard things in life to develop us for Him. But then let me say this, Jacob was not an inconsiderate man when it came to the will of God. When you look at the overall arc of Jacob's story, it is really a big circuitous thing. It's a big circle. He leaves out of the land of his home. He leaves out of Bethel. And he goes on a journey. And he says to the Lord, he says, if you'll bring me back safely to my home, then I promise I'll serve you. He goes out hunting for a woman. Amen. Hunting for a wife. And and for 20 years, he's gone from his home. He goes, he... Uh, goes to the home of his uh, of Laban, his uncle. There he meets and sees Rachel, whom he falls in love with. And for seven years he labors to purchase and to, to pay the price uh, for her marriage. And then after that happens, uh, Laban pulls the, we call it the switcheroo. On the day of marriage, instead of giving him Rachel, he gives him Leah. And he says, now if you want Rachel, you'll work another seven years. And so he says, okay, I'll work another seven years. And he works for seven years then to uh, purchase the hand of Rachel a second time. And then he works for another uh, seven years to purchase the cattle, the livestock, the interest in the business that him and his uncle had built. Over 20 years it took Jacob to get from point A to point B. He had seen the hand of God. He had seen the time it takes. He was not somebody that did not realize that sometimes it takes years for the will of God to bloom into a full blessing. And some of you in this room, you know this as a fact, that sometimes you've got to be patient and wait on God. But sometimes, hey, listen, it's easy to say that when you're not in the midst of despair. But sometimes when hard times come, we find ourselves making this very same statement. Let me give you three simple thoughts this morning. Let me say, number one, when we hear this statement, we hear a bitter man speaking. This is the declaration and exclamation and proclamation of bitterness. You know, I find that oftentimes, hard times come in our life. They always do. And we have a choice as to what we're going to do with them. Our hard times can either better us or they can bitter us. And too often we allow the calamities of life to plant in our hearts a root of bitterness. There could be people in this room bitter. And you might not even know it. 
We think of, when we think of bitterness, we think of the person that is so arrested and defined and crippled by their bitterness that they can't even function. And there's a lot of those in the world today. Hey, listen, there, there's people sitting at home, not in church anyway, because they're mad because of something that God allowed in their life, or they're mad because of something somebody did to them, something somebody said about them, and they won't go into the house of God. They won't come into the presence of the Lord. Hey, there's people that can't even have friends, they can't have relationship, they can't function in any way, shape, fashion, or form, because they have been crippled by bitterness. But bitterness does not start out that way. Bitterness starts out as a root that no one else can see. It's thereafter that it springs up, the Hebrews writer says, and thereby many are defiled. But bitterness begins as a root under the surface. And every one of those people, very often, if you examine their personal history, you'll find that after tragedy came or after the event that is at the heart of their bitterness took place, they probably put on a mask and went on and kept the status quo for a little while. But if you harbor bitterness long enough, eventually it's going to get the best of you. Jacob was bitter about some things. What, what does he have to be bitter over? I think there's three things. I don't think it's just what's taking place in chapter 42. I think, number one, he was probably bitter over where his life was at. Remember, his name means supplanter, deceiver. Jacob has, for 20 years, strived, striven to try to get things his own way. He has labored. He worked 14 years to marry the woman that he loved, another seven only to be taken advantage of by his father-in-law who tried to cheat him at every single turn. He has, uh, he has uh, crossed over peril. He has crossed over trouble and trial. He has worked. He has scraped. He has labored for the life that he has. Now he's an old man. His quiver and his barns are full. He is back in the land where God had called him to. He is in the season of life where you would imagine a man should be able to sit back and merely enjoy the fruits of their labors. But instead, we don't find fruitfulness, we find a famine. You know, there's a lot of folks that can't get over the fact that their expectations went unfulfilled in life. There's a lot of folks just simply not happy with where they are. They're angry that things haven't turned out the way that they had planned. That's why it's a good thing to just go ahead and scrap your plan and ask for God's plan because God's plan is always right and best. And I'm not saying it's wrong to make plans in life, but I am saying it's wrong to worship the plans that we make in life because let me tell you something, more often than not, things don't go according to my plans. And if your happiness, your contentment is based upon your expectations being fulfilled, I'm just telling you, you're setting yourself up for failure and bitterness. No doubt when he says all these things, he's not just talking about the loss of, of Simeon and Benjamin. And in fact, we know he's not. Because he says Joseph is not. He's saying, I thought I was going to be here with all my boys, with my wives. I thought I was going to be here with all the blessing and enrichment that God had promised me. And now things have not turned out the way I expected. And he says, I'm not pleased with it. All these things are against me. He was bitter over his life. Let me say number two, I believe he was bitter over his losses. That's what he describes. He says, Joseph is not. Simeon is not. Benjamin is going to be taken away. At this point, his wealth, his security, his happiness is all being threatened. 
Everything he's labored for is now just precariously sitting on the edge of a cliff. And all the things that he has lost that he didn't think he ought to have lost, that he thought were his and belonged to him and secured by God's providence, it seems as though all of them have been ripped away. You know, I find this, bitterness is a weed. It springs up and thereby many be defiled. Bitterness is a weed. And weeds often grow in ground that is left barren and uncultivated. In other words, weeds will naturally take up the space where nothing else is growing. This, by the way, is why it's so dangerous to not be constantly pushing and developing and growing in our spiritual walk. Because if you leave that ground uncultivated, pretty soon discontentment's going to spring up there. But also in times and places where we have lost something. I've experienced some degree of loss in my life. There's people in this room that have experienced far more loss than I hope I will ever experience. And you and I both know how cautious we must be because those losses can turn into bitterness. And we can begin to say, Lord, not just ask why. I don't think God's angry when we ask why. But I think He is angry when we ask how dare you. And I think that's where we find ourselves. It's natural to say, Lord, why? It's a whole other thing to say, how dare you, God? This belonged to me. It was mine. I labored for it. I loved it. How dare you rip such a precious thing away from me? In those places where loss takes place, bitterness can spring up. But then I can't help but think, too, that he was probably bitter over his limitations. It's interesting, if you read on in this passage, Simeon is in prison... His other nine sons are, 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 are back home. Joseph, to his mind, is dead. And he, he has Benjamin. Now, Benjamin was very precious to him. Benjamin was his last tie, in his mind, to his beloved wife, Rachel. And he does not want to give Benjamin up. So if you read on, Jacob actually refuses the request of his sons. In this He actually says, no, you cannot take Benjamin away from me. I'll rather let Simeon die in an Egyptian prison then risk losing the rest of you and risk losing Benjamin and risk losing Simeon in one fell swoop. It is not until the provisions that they had taken back run out that he then steps out in faith and says, all right, you can take Benjamin. By the way, isn't that a good instruction for us? Sometimes when, when our sack is full of grain, it's easy to get territorial over our life. Sometimes God has to bring us to a place of barrenness get us to let go of the things we think we need most. Finally, when the provisions run out, he says, all right, we've got no choice. We're all going to die here if we don't get supplies. So take Benjamin with you, but promise me you'll bring him back. You know what that tells me? That tells me the fact that he was willing to let Simeon sit in that Egyptian prison tells me that Jacob was doing everything he could to try to keep Benjamin safe. Probably, if Jacob had been a younger man, he wouldn't have sat back and waited on his sons to bring Simeon home. He would have probably done like his grandfather Abraham did when Abraham's nephew Lot had been taken captive by pagan kings. Abraham mustered his forces, his army, and he went after him. Jacob probably, if he'd been a younger man, in better health, with more resources, with more opportunity, he probably would have mounted up himself, ran to Egypt, uh, faced this young upstart uh, to the face and said, How dare you keep my son in prison? The reality is, he's at a place in life where he can't even make the journey to Egypt. That's the reason he's sending his sons in the first place. 
He'd fix it if he could. This is what I'm trying to get you to understand. He'd fix it if he could. But part of the cause of his bitterness, I think, is his recognition that he's at a place in life where he can't. I see this a lot in people's lives. Man, that's one of the, well, that's one of the, the, and I ain't just preaching to older people today, but some of this does hit on older people because Jacob was an older man. And oftentimes, one of the great tragedies and difficulties in life for people to cope with is merely the loss of their, of their agency, of their capacity, of their ability to self-govern and to be the masters of their own fate. It's a hard thing to realize when you get to a place in life, be it through age and infirmity, be it through sickness, whatever it might be, be it through just merely a lack of resource. It's a hard thing to come to terms with the fact that there are some problems too big for you to fix. And if you're not careful, instead of running to God and saying, God, this thing's bigger than me, I need you to fix it, you're bigger than this problem, there is a tendency to grow bitter in feeling as though you've been robbed of the capacity to affect change in your situation. He did everything he could to try to keep Benjamin home, but at the end of the day, the famine was too big. And we learned by the end of this that it really wasn't the famine, it was that God was too big. And he was trying to fight against what God was trying to do. At the end of the day, we need to recognize that the only way in which we are limited is through the providence of God. We serve a God big enough to fix any situation. Instead of getting all wrapped up in your insecurity and getting all gnarled up and bitter on God because you feel too weak or you feel incapable of doing what you wish you could do, instead recline on the omnipotent God that can do all things and recognize that if it hadn't been for Him, you could have never changed anything, done anything in the first place. We see a bitter man making this cry. Let me say number two to you, that we find it is a blind man making this cry. Of all the statements that he makes, the only one that is semi-true is that he says, you're trying to take Benjamin away. In fact, the very things, listen to this, the very things that instigate his cry of despair are not real. They are imagined calamities. Now, they're not irrational. Anybody would have thought that. But recognize the truth that the things that crushed his spirit were not even reality. Jacob was so shut up to his problem that he had shut God out. There's a great danger of shutting ourselves up to our challenges, our stripes, our troubles, our problems, and in doing so, pushing God out of the scene. Jacob couldn't see God at that moment. There are always two ways, by the way, of looking at life. We can either look at God through life, or we can look at life through God. We can either look at God and let it, let Him and His personage and His promises and His compassion and His nature be defined by what we perceive to be our circumstances. In other words, saying, if God was good, He wouldn't allow this to happen. Or we can choose to look at it and say, I know God is good, so I may not understand what's happening, but I know this too will be for my good. By the way, Joseph, his son, was the best example of this. You find with Jacob, he's looking at God's providence and saying, God ain't nowhere to be found. But Joseph looks at his own pain and his own problems and sees God everywhere in it. When he talks to his brethren later on, he says, Listen, you meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. The hand of God was on me the whole time. I didn't understand it. I couldn't see it. But now I look backwards and see the stamp of God's providence on everything I went through. We can either look at God through 
the, the, the spectrum of life or we can look at life through the spectrum of God and say, I trust that God has a reason and a purpose in this thing. He was blind to some things. It's interesting what he says when he mentions his son's names. You know, names mean something in the Bible. Uh, names are not given uh, just for, for nonsensical reasons. Now, people name their kids things like Seven and, and, and Ratchet and just random things. But in the Bible, people named their children something, and it meant something. And it particularly meant something in the context of the relationship between Jacob and Rachel and Leah. Something you'll find as you study through the Bible is that when there are pairs of wives, and there's a few situations of this in the Bible, when there are pairs of wives, there is always the dynamic that one of them is beloved but barren, and the other one is despised but is fruitful. And the reason is it's representative of, of the, the Jewish nation and the church. The Jewish nation, the Jews as a people, are beloved but barren, but the church are a despised people whom God, through His grace, has brought into the family of God, and it is a fruitful venture, the church of the living God is. And so you'll always find this dynamic. And it was this way with Rachel and Leah. Rachel was the wife that he loved, but she was also barren. She bore him no children except the two, Joseph and Benjamin. Leah, on the other hand, uh, was not loved by Jacob. In fact, she spent her whole life vying for Jacob's love, trying to achieve and buy and purchase and win Jacob's love, and she never did. By the way, you know the first time the word praise is used in the Bible, it's Leah praising God. After she has one of her sons, she says, now, after she has Judah, in fact, she says, now will I praise the Lord. It it, it took a despised, rejected, discarded, unloved woman, bereft of the attention and love and care of her husband, to utter the word praise the first time in your Bible. And by the way, she gave birth to Judah, which means praise, and Judah is the tribe from which the Son of God, uh, His earthly body, uh, the lineage came from. Ain't no telling what in our rejection, in our dismissal, in our despair, ain't no telling what God can bring out of it. Rachel and Leah had this same dynamic. And so, in the birth of their sons, we find, and, and we'll mention the three that are mentioned here, Joseph, Simeon, and Benjamin, but this is true for all of the sons. Every one of them, their name had significance. But when Joseph says, or when Jacob says, Joseph is not, Simeon is not, Benjamin you're desiring to take away, he is at the same time making a commentary about some of the things that God has given him in his life. For instance, the name Joseph means addition or increase. And the reason that Rachel gave him that name when he was born is... The Bible says she called his name Joseph in Genesis 30, 24 and said, The Lord shall add to me another son. In her mind, the term Joseph, the name Joseph, was associated with the promises of God. And whenever Jacob says Joseph is not, he's saying increase is not, blessing is not, the promises of God are not. He is implying that God's promises and blessing and favor have failed. You know, for us to be bitter, we have to first deceive ourselves into believing that God has broken His promises in our life. We have to first convince ourselves that God has dropped the ball. We have to first convince ourselves that God's blessing has been removed from our life. Blessing does not always look like a pleasant experience. You can go through the Bible, and very often the greatest blessings in people's lives came through the darkest of circumstances. 
We recognize this as a basic principle. And by the way, so did Jacob. It was through wrestling with God, through being crippled by God, that he got a new name and a new knowledge of God. He recognized this. He understood it. But in the moment of his grief, he dismissed that principle. And he says, it must be that God's favor and blessing have left me. Let me tell you, it's a dangerous thing when we become so blind that we can't even see how good God's been to us. But when we begin to talk this way, I'm not fussing at you. I've been there too. I may be there again before you get there. But I'm telling you, when we're at this place where we say, all these things are against me, what we're saying is, none of these things are for me. Because God's not for me. Because God's against me. I believe he was saying that the promises of God had been robbed from him. Then he says, Simeon is not. Simeon's very interesting. In this journey that Leah takes trying to win the love of Jacob, every time she has a son, until she gets to Judah, by the way, every time she has a son, she thinks that son is going to be the one that's going to make Jacob love her. And every time she's wrong. In fact, she doesn't get content until she finally has Judah and she says, I'm just going to be, I'm, I'm just going to praise God. Even if, even if my circumstances are not what I think they ought to be, I'm going to praise Him on faith. And there she finds contentment. She stopped having children at that point because she found peace. She found contentment in that situation. But when she has Simeon, the Bible says this, Genesis 29, 33, and she conceived again and bare a son and said, because the Lord hath heard that I was hated, He hath therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Now the name Simeon means hearing or heard. Uh, It's deeply connected later on the, the name Samuel. God hath heard. Samuel. Simeon merely means hearing or heard. And what she says is, I'm naming this son Simeon because I am convinced by his birth that God has seen and perceived and heard my suffering, my pain, and my cry. Now Jacob is saying that perceptiveness, that awareness, that keenness is no more. It's almost like he's saying, God has done forgot about me. He doesn't see what I'm experiencing. He doesn't see my pain. He doesn't see what I'm going through. He doesn't understand or sense the feeling and the suffering that I'm going through. You know, for us to be bitter, we have to convince ourselves that God has forgot about us. Because we're told in the book of Hebrews that we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmity. In other words, the high priest we have can be touched with the feelings of our infirmity. The Bible says that the eyes of the Lord are upon all things, beholding the good and the evil. In order to make room for the weed of bitterness, we have to convince ourselves that God no longer sees what we're going through. In fact, God saw everything that Jacob was going through. And then he says, you want to take Benjamin away. This is interesting. Benjamin was the last son. He was the youngest of all of them. And he was the second and last son of Rachel. Because of this, Joseph and Benjamin both had a privileged place in the heart of their father. To to Joseph, Jacob had given a coat of many colors denoting the favor that he enjoyed with his father. And with Benjamin, we find that He's even willing to give up Simeon if that's what it takes to maintain Benjamin's safety. Benjamin is a treasured son in the heart and mind of his father. But it's interesting that he should be so attached to Benjamin considering what happened at Benjamin's birth. When Benjamin was born, Rachel, the beloved wife of Jacob, died in childbirth. Before she died, she named her son. 
The Bible says in Genesis 35, 18, it came to pass as her, talking about Rachel, as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Anai. Now that name means son of my sorrow. And she was dying, and this tells you something about the carnality, about the baseness of Rachel as a person, that in her dying breath she cursed her son and said, This son has brought my sorrow. Jacob, he looks down at that little boy. The Bible says this, his father called him Benjamin. The name Benjamin does not mean son of my sorrow. The name Benjamin means son of my right hand or son of my power. You know what he was saying? He was saying, I had one son in old age and he's been taken from me. But God has given me another son in old age. God has provided for me a helper, someone that can can minister to me, someone that can be at my right hand at all times to aid and to assist me. Now he's saying, you want to take that away. And I believe what he's saying here is that the providence of God is being taken away from him. This is, this is the path, friend. First we get to thinking, well, God doesn't love me no more. Then we get to thinking, well, God doesn't see me anymore and He don't care about what I'm going through. And then we finally end by crying and saying this, the Lord isn't even in control of things anymore. It's fascinating because to me, one of the greatest testimonies of the sovereign providence of God is this very story. Joseph's life. And what it meant and became for the nation of Israel is probably the greatest song ever composed to the concept of God's providence. That God could have His hand upon Joseph from the cradle all the way to the courts of Egypt. That He could, through this process, bring this family to Egypt and then 450 years later bring a nation out. But in this moment, He begins to think, God's providence has failed me. Listen, the problems may have mounted in your life, but the promises of God remain. Just because problems arise, that doesn't mean God's dropped the ball. Many things were concealed from Jacob, but everything was controlled by God. Jacob exhibited blindness to both the person behind the scenes and the providence beyond the scenes. I don't know if it was willful blindness. I don't think it was. I, I, I think it was just a, this is the, this is the effect of despair. It can, it can put a veil over our eyes, things that we know to be true. This is the reason, by the way, I believe it was Corey Tin Moon that said, don't ever doubt in the dark what you know in the day. Because very often when the darkness comes, we all of a sudden forget about what we know. How many of you, your parents told you this? My parents told me this when I was young, and it'd be nighttime, or we'd be out walking, you know, we, we lived out in the country, we'd be out walking at nighttime, and they'd say something like this, don't be afraid, there's nothing there in the dark that isn't there in the day. There's nothing there in the dark that isn't there in the day. Except snakes and skunks and coyotes and... But you don't tell your kids that. The reality is this, there is nothing there in the dark that's not there during the day. But there's also nothing there during the day that disappears during the dark. You can rest in God's providence. God is just as in control when you feel things are out of control as He is when you think you're in control. I'm going to say that again. God is just as in control when you feel things are out of control as He is when you think you're in control. What you think about the situation don't change God's control of it. We see a 
bitter man, we see a blind man. And in closing, let me say this, that I think when we step back and look at the narrative, we can't help but see also a blessed man is making this statement. I see three things that he's not talking about that if he was talking about, he would have probably never uttered this statement. This is the remedy for the despair that you're feeling. Are you ready? Number one, I can't help but see God's grace in his life. The fact of the matter is this. Jacob should have never even been here. He had more often than not walked away from God, lived a life of of wickedness, of carnality, of selfishness, of self-governance and self-rule and rebellion against God. And if God had been fair, He would have snuffed Jacob out a long, long, long time ago. Listen, I'm not trying in the midst of your despair to beat you over the head. Heaven knows what you need is encouragement when you're saying these things, not discouragement. But it should be an encouragement to recognize the grace of God in our life. The fact is, you and I, no matter what charges we may level against God because we're displeased with how things are going, we cannot help if we're saved by His grace but lift our hand to heaven and say, what I've got is still better than I ever deserve. I see God's grace in His life. Number two, I see God's guarding in His life. He says, Joseph is not, Simeon is not, and Benjamin is about to be taken away. And he is, in the strictest sense of terms, wrong on all three accounts. He thinks Joseph is dead. He's not seen him in 12 years. Boy, it's going to be something when the caravan pulls in from Egypt after Joseph has revealed himself to his brethren and says, load up, boys, Joseph is still alive. And the fact of the matter is, you don't know what God's doing. For you to get gnarled up in bitterness, you have to assume you know everything. You have to assume that you know the future. You have to assume that you know God's plan. You have to assume that you know what's going to transpire. And the fact of the matter is, you don't know none of that. Neither do I. Very often the things that we fear the most are just that, fears and nothing more. God had guarded carefully. And you can read through Joseph's life and see how the providence of God had guarded carefully his well-being. God, hey, listen, Jacob may have turned his attention away from Joseph, but God never took his eyes off of him. And the things that you feel like God's taking away from you, you need to rest assured there's nothing you need that God's going to take from you. And if He takes it from you, it's not just because you don't need it, because there's a lot of things in our life we don't need that God still blesses us with. But if He takes it away from you, it's because you shouldn't have it, because it's hurting you to have it. But the things that are precious, the things that accompany God's will and God's blessing, are things that God will guard through His power and providence. And then finally, I can't help but see God's guiding in this situation. Jacob would have never went to Egypt on his own. He had probably learned from his daddy's sojourn in Egypt and his granddaddy's sojourn in Egypt that every time one of God's people went to Egypt, they wound up in a mess. And it's obvious he doesn't want to go. He sends his sons to go. And in all of his journeys, by the way, this is the exception between his father and his grandfather and him and many of his sons. He never does go to Egypt. He has zero interest in going to Egypt. But God had already spoken to his granddaddy Abraham many years prior that part of the providential plan of God was that the lineage of Abraham would be gone into bondage and darkness for 450 years, and through that bondage they'd be brought forth as a nation. He would have never gone to Egypt. 
what God was doing. All these things, that's what he's saying. All these things are against me. It took all those things, Jacob, to get you where God wanted you. God is guiding him to the land of Egypt because Egypt was the place of their increase. Egypt was the place where they went from a family to a nation. And by the way, Egypt was the place of their salvation in a sense because they're saved from the famine by going to Egypt. By the way, in a greater spiritual sense, it was the place of the salvation of the nation because it's from Egypt that God brings them out through the Passover blood of the Lamb. None of this would have happened if Jacob had had his way. None of this would have happened if all these things had not been against him. You know... I heard a preacher say one time, I think there's maybe some truth to this, although I haven't seen it borne out altogether. But he said, for every Old Testament verse, there's a companion verse in the New Testament. Simple math won't allow that to be. Somebody say amen to that. But I do think there is some truth to that, that when you lay verses side by side, it illustrates by comparing contrast and important truth. Can I read two verses for you? Would it be all right? Our text verse. Jacob their father said unto them, Me have ye bereaved of my children... Joseph is not, Simeon is not, and you will take Benjamin away. All these things are against me. Brother Paul says in Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Interesting, all these things that they're talking about. Jacob on this side of his trials is saying, all these things are against me. Paul on the other side of Calvary and on the other side of grace is saying, all these things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Listen, at the end of the day, the guidance of God, His providence in your life, you may feel as though your life is in pieces, but recognize that He deals in the currency of broken pieces, that He ministers through broken things. It took the broken vessel of Gideon to shine the light forth. It took the uh, broken bread in order to feed the 5,000. It took the broken body of the Lord Jesus to save those that would come unto Him. God deals in broken things. And you may look at it and say, no good can come out of it, preacher. I'm broken. And God might be saying, yeah, you're about where I need you in order for me to start working in your life. We can grow bitter if we want, or we can recline on the providence of God and say, Lord, I don't understand. And I'm not going to pretend I understand, but I'm going to go ahead and praise you even if I don't understand, because I may not know a lot of things, but I know that you're good, and I know that you love me, and I know that you're powerful, and I know that you're in control. In other words, we can allow the things we don't know to bitter us. Or we can allow the things we do know to better us and to draw us closer unto the Lord and to give us peace when all these things seem to line up against us.